Coming up today, how China took control of the world's lithium supply, and we explain why your next car could be a threat to national security. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to the future of tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. Amit Kawala. Hello. And Morgan Meeker. Hey. This was the week when the heatwave, which baked much of the UK and Western Europe on Monday and Tuesday, caused major outages at data centres run by Google and Oracle in London. The outages were caused by the failure of cooling systems, which apparently weren't designed to cope with dangerously high temperatures. This was also the week when, in the latest bad omen for the delivery sector, Just Eat said it's considering firing permanent delivery staff across 26 French cities due to what it called difficult market dynamics. This was also the week when the developer of the popular video game Minecraft said it would ban NFT-related projects and items from being used on its servers, calling them antithetical to the game's values of creative inclusion. And finally, it was the week when Tesla revealed it has sold off most of its big cryptocurrency holdings. The electric car firm has offloaded 75% of its Bitcoin, which was worth about 2 billion US dollars at the start at the end of 2021. Now, before we get into the show properly, I've got some news to share with you all. Well, not with the people in this room, because you know this already. And I hate talking about myself, so I'm going to keep it brief and awkward. After about eight years of working for Wired in London, this is my last week, but it's also not my last week. Back in, what was it, November last year, we merged the US and UK editions of Wired. Um, if you listen to the podcast, you might not have noticed, apart from me telling you to go and read stories on Wired.com, but we're now part of one team. Um, and as it happens, next week my family and I are moving to Montreal in Canada, and I'll also be taking up a new job for Wired, working with editors and reporters in the US and the UK. Unfortunately, I will still be on the podcast, but maybe that's good news. Anyway, that's that. That's my news. On with the show. What did we learn this week? Amit. So I learned that, so I I'd kind of associated alt milks with being kind of a modern invention, but I actually learned that we've been making them for thousands of years. So almond milk, oat milk, potato milk, things like that actually date back to before the Middle Ages. There are references to plant-based milk from the 12th and 13th century. And there's a recipe book from the Levant from the 13th century that references almond milk. Soya milk has been used in China since the 14th century. What made, what made people look at a nut and think, I can milk it? I mean, I think we've got a long history of a species of trying to milk basically anything we can get our hands on, whether that be nut or animal. Please continue that thought. I have nothing more to add on that. Wonderful. Uh, Morgan, save us from milking nuts. Um, what I learned this week is that a Victorian-era law is being used to charge women for having abortions here in the UK. So we've heard a lot about restrictions to abortion access in the US, but last week a 25-year-old pleaded not guilty to a charge of taking poison to in induce a miscarriage at Oxford Crown Court. So weirdly, this crime falls under the Offences Against the Person Act, which is from 1861 and carries a maximum sentence of life in prison. And is that a sentence... I mean assuming what's happened here is they just haven't updated a law because it hasn't been tested in such a long time or is, is is this something where there's a precedent of people being tried for this recently and found guilty and sentenced so this week there's another person being charged in staffordshire under a law from the 1920s so i think i mean obviously abortion isn't criminalized in this country but there's a very small number of people every year that are kind of reported for 
having abortions illegally and it looks like kind of these weird old laws are sort of dredged up from the past to do that the point being that there's a specific or there are a range of ways in which you should have an abortion and the way that this woman went about doing it doesn't fall within the legal guidelines I'm not sure about that. I mean, BPAS, so the the abortion service provider, which is all very legal where she got the abortion pills from, there's been kind of an outcry which is saying that, that this shouldn't happen. It's kind of criminalising a process which is not illegal. And it basically looks like something that's just kind of testing the legal system. And this seems to be happening twice in two weeks. So it's quite strange. And I guess it's getting more attention than it might normally have done with all the Roe v. Wade stuff. Yeah, and I suppose any time that someone's tried for something under a law passed or an act passed in 1861, it might raise eyebrows as to how contemporary um, and accurate those laws are in today's society. Anyway, on with the show. Amit, our first story. Yes, our first story this week is about batteries. So if you have been keeping an eye on Wired.com recently, you will have seen a series of articles looking at China's electric vehicle industry. Uh, So today, Morgan and I are going to be digging into one aspect of this and looking at China's tight control of the supply chain for lithium-ion batteries. Since the 1990s, lithium has transformed the world. It's in our smartphones, in our laptops, and in our electric cars. But as the world switches to electric vehicles, we're going to need more and more lithium-ion batteries to put into these cars. And that's a problem for the West, because China has cornered the market, not only for finished batteries, but also for the materials that go into them and the processing required to make them. And that's exemplified by one company in particular, a company that controls a staggeringly large percentage of the global EV battery market, as Morgan has been finding out. Yeah, exactly. So I found out that not many people in the UK will heard of the world's biggest battery company. It's called CATL. It's a Chinese company and it has such massive influence over the EV industry that in the Chinese media, it's regularly referred to as the CATL king or just the battery king. So it supplies more than 30% of the world's EV batteries and counts almost all of the major EV manufacturers as its clients. So think Tesla, think Kia, think BMW. Um, And the company's identity is very entwined with its founder, Robin Zung. So CATL's headquarters, which are, by the way, shaped like a giant lithium battery pack, is based in Zung's hometown. And under Zung's leadership, CATL's valuation has mushroomed to about $179 billion. So think about the the kind of staple car brands that, that people associate with the car industry, General Motors and Ford. That valuation is more than both of those combined. But I think what's most interesting about the company is how it's sort of emblematic of China's fast-moving, forward-thinking policies when it comes to the EV supply chain. So for years, CATL has been buying stakes in mining projects in China, the Democratic Republic of Congo and Indonesia, which is similar to what a lot of Chinese companies have been doing for years. I think more companies should make their headquarters the shape of the product they make. I think that would be an amusing kind of thing I think that would be a great rule. Um, So, Morgan, as you're saying, China has been really kind of forward thinking in buying up stakes and mining projects. And this all goes back to a policy called Made in China 2025, which was really instrumental in giving the country a head start on electric cars. So from about 2015 onwards, there were huge subsidies for EVs from central government. And China was really able to create a domestic EV market from scratch. And crucially, not just the market, but all the other stuff to go along with it, the manufacturing, the, the resources, all that stuff. The country has signed, as you said, strategic deals with lithium-rich nations, and it's got a huge stake in manufacturing capacity as well, not just in China itself, but also abroad. 
Yeah, but in your story, Amit, you talk about efforts in the US and Europe to catch up with China. So there's a sense that if they don't act soon, China is going to control huge swathes of the EV supply chain, and that could put the ambitions of other countries at risk. So we're recording this in the UK, where the government has recently decided to fund a company that wants to build the first commercial lithium refinery in Europe. And this is basically an effort to help battery makers decrease their reliance on China. And we've spoken before on this podcast about how European governments are trying to persuade people in Germany, France and Serbia to let companies build lithium mines in their local communities, although they are experiencing a lot of pushback from people who'd have to live next to these mines. That's right, yes. The US and Europe are getting increasingly nervous about Chinese dominance of this crucial product. We've seen uh, in America, for instance, Joe Biden signing this thing into law that would allow them to basically use emergency powers to fund lithium extraction and as you say the west is kind of slowly catching up so factories are being built new lithium mines are being developed but the catch is that many of those mines are actually partly owned by chinese companies and china still dominates the lithium processing aspect so it controls between two-thirds and three-quarters of global lithium lithium so you know even if they're mining lithium in europe it might still have to go through china to be processed and at the same time uh, as you know this is happening chinese ev companies are also expanding into europe so these efforts are taking shape quite slowly. If everything goes to plan, there will be 13 new gigafactories in the US by 2025, plus an additional 35 in Europe by 2035, with the caveat, as you said, that you know people don't necessarily want, people in Europe don't necessarily want these factories to be built in their backyards. There's been a lot of nimbyism, most notably with Tesla's controversial gigafactory near Berlin. Mm. Yeah, so I think so Tesla is not the only company trying to set up a gigafactory with an easy access of basically what is Europe's car-making hub, Germany. So CATL is also setting up a battery manufacturing plant there, and that's expected to start operating later this year. Whether or not that effort will be successful remains to be seen. I mean, when I was talking to people for this story, they told me that Chinese companies have typically struggled to expand internationally. I mean, the regulatory systems are so different, they don't get nearly as much subsidy support as they used to at home. But even if that is the case, and CATL does struggle in Europe, it doesn't necessarily mean that European battery makers think about Britain's British Vault or Sweden's North Vault are going to find it easy to compete with CATL. Uh, I think the Made in China subsidies really helped Zung build this really solid foundation underneath his business. I spoke to people who described how even when CATL was getting subsidies, it, it didn't kind of sit back, it, it didn't stop raising money and that basically enabled the company to get ahead. It essentially invested really heavily in the lithium supply chain and also in research into lithium alternatives such as their new sodium ion batteries which they announced quite recently. Yeah and that's really interesting because what CATL did is kind of a mirror of what you know happened in China versus the West more broadly. So in America and Europe investment in lithium has really been at the mercy of the lithium price, at the mercy of the market. So you know, there have been investments in R&D projects, investments in new mines, but when the lithium price falls, for whatever reason, development just stops. But China, because of its state investment, has taken a much more steady approach, and it's kind of continued to steadily develop sources of lithium, manufacturing capacity, etc. So as a result, it's continued to develop these sources, even when similar projects in other parts of the world have just stopped. And CATL has been one of the main beneficiaries of this approach. But this isn't just luck. This isn't just a story about, you know, a country. It's also a story about a company and it's also a story about a specific man who's played a very, very canny hand here. 
Yeah, I think it's definitely unfair to attribute all of CATL's success to the subsidies it's received. So for my story about Zong, I spoke to a lot of people who described him as really savvy, like an operator who could master not only the intricacies of running a business, but also the intricacies of batteries. So there's this story that came up again and again when I was talking to industry insiders about how Zong bought a battery patent really early in the early 2000s, but the battery didn't really work quite how he wanted it to. So he basically tinkered with the chemistry himself until it it did. And so that got him a lot of respect uh, within the industry. But I mean, from a Western perspective, from where we're standing, the obvious comparison to make is between Zung and Elon Musk. I mean, the two men are behind two EV uh, giants. They were numbers one and two of Bloomberg's most recent richest green billionaires list with Elon Musk still at number one. But there is an important distinction to make between the two men, and that hinges on the fact that Musk, he can be this sort of larger-than-life billionaire, he can really lean into the influence that that he's been given, but Zhang almost has to do the opposite. Billionaires in China can't be bigger than Beijing, especially following the tech crackdown of last summer. So... That dynamic also makes car makers and countries that rely on Zung for their EV batteries a bit nervous. They're aware that if he does something that Beijing doesn't like, his company could quite quickly be subject to a crackdown, as happened to Alibaba founder Jack Ma when he was considered to be a bit too outspoken. Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment, not just about CATL, but about the supply of things from China more generally, like people are looking at the situation in Ukraine with oil and gas and the semiconductor shortages that were sparked by you know, lockdowns in China and have caused massive price increases in the car industry. Uh, political tensions are rising, you know, between China and Taiwan. There's a risk that we might, ha- um, the West might have to expo- impose sanctions or an export ban on Chinese-made batteries might be imposed from Beijing. And that could essentially paralyse the EV industry in Europe and in the US just as it's kind of starting to grow. So these problems are starting to attract the attention of lawmakers. So I mentioned the Joe Biden law using emergency defence funds, which will ex- explore new sources of lithium in the US. Yeah, and CATL is worried about this. I mean, as US and European car makers try to diversify, the company's been doubling down um, on R&D. It's doubled the number of R&D employees. It's trying to create new, more appealing products at better price points than everyone else, investing in lithium mines, basically trying to make it very difficult for its clients to stop relying on its batteries. So even if they have kind of geopolitical motivations for fu- for entertaining its competitors, CATL doesn't want that. So, I mean, it's definitely not in the company's interest for it to have a trade war. Yeah, that's right. A trade war is not really in anyone's interest. And as a result, we're in this sort of uneasy standoff until there's some big breakthrough in battery technology or something happens that's going to kind of break this deadlock. So the US and Europe need Chinese batteries and Chinese-owned lithium supplies, but... China is reliant on imports of nickel and other key materials that go into the batteries and EVs. But while, you know, on the face of it, there's this kind of like truce on behind the scenes, both sides are racing for independence. So China's developing its domestic sources of lithium. It's got, you know, some, it's got such a vast geography that it does have some domestic mines that could be tapped, which haven't been yet. The West is trying to build gigafactories that compete on the manufacturing side. There is, um, in the story that I wrote about this, which is available along with Morgan's story and many others uh, on this topic on wired.com, there's a place in Australia that's kind of, um, I guess, typical of where things are at right now. So it's it's called Quinana. It's in Western Australia. And for years, it was the site of an oil refinery for BP. That's now shut down. And instead, there's there's been opened a lithium processing plant that will take lithium that's been mined in Australia, it will refine it, and it can be shipped to battery factories in Sweden and South Korea. So that might sound on the face of it like, you know, 
the western economy kind of breaking free of reliance on china for its lithium for its batteries but actually the kicker is that this mining project is owned or majority owned by tanky lithium which is a huge chinese mining company so even when it looks like countries are kind of getting energy independence actually everything is kind of interconnected and we're all sort of reliant on each other and, and the future of evs is really underpinned by this complex web of global relationships and those relationships if you were to design this from scratch sort of an ideal model there wouldn't be in any supply chain in any industry so much reliance on something so crucial all in the hands of one country which whatever your view operates in a very different way to much of the world yes exactly right and it's it's a it's a repeat of what we've seen in many other industries you know whether that's oil and gas from russia or semiconductors from from china like there is a reliance for economic reasons on manufacturing capacity in those areas of the world and i think people are now realizing i think during the 90s and 2000s everyone thought well you know globalization is the future but i think now the world is a lot more insular than perhaps it was 10 years ago and people are kind of trying to build up domestic supply chains. Yeah, so rather than the nimbyism that you mentioned in the discussion, it might be a case of we don't want that lithium mine in rural France. It might actually be we need that in our backyard because it can no longer be on the other side of the world. Um, We'll include, as Amit said, a link to both of those stories in the show notes. And we'll also include a link to um, the tag page where all of the stories from the China electric vehicle package are collected together. Our second story this week is also from our recent package about China's automotive ambitions. As cars are packed with more and more sensors and Chinese automakers seek to ramp up their operations in the West, concerns have been raised about the amount of data that such vehicles will capture and where it might end up. And if you want to get an idea of what the future might hold, you only need to ask Tesla. So recently in China, officials in a couple of areas have banned electric cars from their streets. This is predominantly for Teslas because it is the biggest Western uh, EV manufacturer in the country. Um, And if we look at this more specifically in the city of Chengdu recently, uh, they barred Teslas in advance of a June visit from uh, President Xi Jinping. Um, And at the time, essentially, uh, Reuters reported these vehicles were not allowed in the streets for around two months. Um, And in addition to this, some military sites have also forbid uh, Elon Musk's flagship product from being around there. While no official reason has been released for these bans, it seems to be out of a concern that the vehicle's impressive array of sensors and cameras may offer a line of sight into meetings around or involving Beijing's senior leadership. It's a curious move, really, because China is increasingly one of those connected countries in the world. But this concern isn't particularly unique to China either. So uh, in Western countries as well, as we have seen the increase in Chinese automakers and gearing up to push their EVs into the West, anxieties are also mounting uh, to how those vehicles could phone data, collect data and send it back home. And this isn't a problem that's unique to electric vehicles, but as sales of internal combustion engine cars fall and cars become i guess more like giant smartphones on wheels it feels inevitable right that they'll soon collect even more data than the most data hungry devices that we use today and carry around with us in our pockets all the time but just how much data do evs on the road today collect and what does the future look like as we go from semi-autonomous evs to fully autonomous cars 
So really there is a colossal amount of data collected by the cars that we use at the moment and uh, the collection of this and sort of keeping of this in electronic formats has increased over recent years as we've had smaller uh, microprocessors, more computers making it easier to store data and send it back and record it to either people that may be uh, involved in the engineering process or any of these types of interactions with the car. So everything that you do in your car really can generate data. So this can go from the location of the vehicle using GPS and uh, various other sensors and things that can track how far you're moving, the speed you're moving at, all of that can be recorded to also sort of the music and sounds that you listen to through an infotainment system. If you're having calls on there, there may be ways that a car could record that you are having a call, not necessarily the contents of that call, but sort of the fact that a call took place through its, through its system. So um, everything that you do can be translated into data if you look at acceleration, that is something that's obviously recorded. All of these types of things are essentially and can be captured. And one way to think about this really is that modern vehicles really aren't just one computer or they don't have one computer in them. There are multiple interconnected brains that can generate up to sort of 25 gigabytes of data per hour from sensors all over the car. And when you think about that in terms of the amount of data, 25 gigabytes of data per hour is a huge amount compared to sort of anything else that we do, Word documents, documents of text numbers things like that will be much much smaller than uh, a gigabyte often in just megabytes so um this the amount of your uh, data you're collecting in a car and the amount of time that people drive it as well can really re reveal a lot of things about behavior um, and as we go into a world where we have more internet of things uh, devices and products that are connected uh, to cars to cities around us we are going to be collecting more information as well so in the future cars will not only collect information about the driver and their passengers in the vehicles but also the vehicles around us the pedestrians that are near us and the city around them as well some of that data will be necessary for a car to function properly to reduce collisions for instance to plan better routes or to improve the vehicles themselves but also that data may be collected and sent to other places so in short cars produce collect a lot of data and it's only going to go increase what we've seen with smartphones is kind of a push and pull between how much data do these companies need to collect for their services to be useful and how much more data are they collecting on top of that in order to make an absolute mint from our day-to-day -day lives and that debate I imagine is going to be one that moves on to electric and connected and autonomous vehicles as they become more commonplace but there's a difference right it's it's a it's a much harder argument to have when you're talking about a car navigating its way through city streets it needs to collect an awful lot of data and it is essentially surveilling the world around it to allow it to do that job but how secure are those connected vehicles because i guess this is what china is hinting at that tesla's collecting all this data but then where does it go yeah and on the on the first point before going into the security of them there is like if your car is collecting lots of data about performance and things like that you are going to want it to collect data about if there's a bug in its system or why something went wrong and report that back to the manufacturers whereas if it is something that could be more behavioral uh, in terms of like what you're doing where you're going etc then there may be sort of more privacy concerns around that, that people don't want that data collected i'm sure at some point in the future uh, potentially advertisers and companies in that space will be looking at using sort of your behavioral car data to serve you specific adverts or if you drive past a 
certain shop, you might get an advert flash up in your car, but that sort of thing, we're a long way off. But in terms of the security, like many uh, connected products and things, pretty much all of them will have vulnerabilities and bugs in the code and their systems because they're written by humans, because we make mistakes and because things can be overlooked. So over the years, we have seen a lot of uh, hacking efforts from researchers against cars and connected vehicles. Um, so we've seen incidents where cars have been taken over and remotely controlled in controlled environments, not in the real world where a, a malicious hacker, say, has tried to cause trouble or cause problems. So they have. we know that anything connected will have issues with it. But when you're talking about cars and data, there's a good example from earlier this year from a 19-year-old German programmer called David Colombo who proved that it was possible to access huge amounts of incredibly sensitive data on Tesla's users from a vulnerability that was in its code. So uh, Colombo used a third-party application with access to Tesla's API and got into the systems of more than two dozen Teslas around the world, controlling their locks, their windows, their sound systems, and downloading a huge bundle of information. And Colombo said that they were able to see a large amount of data, including where the Tesla had been, where it had charged, where its current location was, where it usually parks, when it was driving, the speed of the trips, the navigation requests, history of software updates, and even the weather around the Tesla, and just so much more. Um, while those specific vulnerabilities were taken care of by Tesla and patched, they sort of give an insight into the amount of data that cars are collecting and how, uh, in a scenario, if you had somebody that was trying to... Uh, collect data around an individual and their behaviors, their movements to work out where they're going. If it's a government leader or a senior politician, that sort of data could give you, inform you about where they're going to be or where they may be going next. And you could easily see how, um, if you wanted to do something nefarious with that, you probably could. Yes. A lot of this is, I mean, the data collection isn't hypothetical, but its use in those terms is quite hypothetical certainly at a large scale this could definitely be something that was used as a targeted attack against a specific diplomat for example if you wanted to gather intelligence on high profile officials but on mass population level surveillance or surveillance against the population of a country that you're not particularly friendly with that's something that we're looking at in the future may or may not happen there's an awful lot to go before it does but why then is china in a good position when it comes to electric cars and data because the way that we're framing this story is that oh your next car might be a threat to national security but the kind of nugget that triggered the idea was tesla's american evs being banned from the roads in certain parts of china Really, the concern as we're framing it is that this might be something that China's in a better position to benefit from. Yeah, so I think it goes both ways, really. And when you talk about sort of the movement and the collection of data, there are different political interests in this generally from a sort of like nation state level. So China's capability in handling eye-watering volumes of data is very well documented. Over the recent years, the country has hacked a lot of uh, industries and companies to collect intellectual property and data so that they can build their own state level uh, infrastructure out of there. But uh, it also collects a lot of data on citizens through movements, through facial recognition cameras and all of those types of things as well. It's worth saying the US does this as well, as do a lot of Western countries, right? I mean, th th this is something that China is very good at. And there has been an awful lot of very good reporting on the level of surveillance control that Chinese authorities impose on people within the country. But massive data collection against citizens isn't something that's unique to China. No, but I think that the level that it is collected in China and the surveillance that people are under is higher than other places in the world, but it's definitely yeah. not uh, something that is completely unique to China. So yeah. that is why also there is this suggestion of uh, talking about concern about 
american vehicles teslas in this instance in china and if they were sending data back to the us which there is no proof that there is uh, that been happening but that's where some of these concerns seem to have been founded from uh, the chinese authorities in these instances yes yeah. and if you wanted to design a surveillance device on wheels it might look an awful lot like an electric moving towards autonomous semi-autonomous vehicles right the amount of data that these things are able to collect and they just cruise through our city streets and we wouldn't pay them any attention they're kind of ideal right yeah, they are. And I think when you're talking uh, in this instance, some of the concerns that were raised about China sending data back to China, we've seen this already a bit with TikTok, with uh, with uh, Huawei as well, a sort of concerns at a geopolitical level. And we haven't necessarily seen uh, evidence to show that any of these companies are particularly sending data back to China. But there is at least on a political concern, uh, the threat of this happening and because, and that is because in China there are certain laws that require localization of data for companies that are based in the country and also sort of if you are a company in China there are close links between the state and also that business so yeah. those types of concerns do exist um, but that is probably natural that this starts to roll over into electric vehicles and new products and uh, that are collecting more data and with the kind of back and forth over Huawei and TikTok Another way of interpreting what happened there, particularly in the United States, was this was one of the first examples of like Chinese supremacy. So American companies are, are very used to relying on Chinese suppliers, Chinese manufacturers to make their things, which are then American products and services or Western products and services if we pull European. Um, but TikTok is the first Chinese global app superstar. Huawei was in a position to potentially run the communications infrastructure for countries all over the world and to supersede Western companies that the US and, and, and Europe might rather have running the communications infrastructure. So there's that going on as well. And it'll be interesting to see as, say, when you go to purchase, well, maybe not your next car, but the car that you buy in 10 years' time, will you have the choice between a Tesla, a Ford, and a Chinese car? And that will be a big difference. And will the US and Europe seek to impose similar restrictions on those Chinese automakers as they imposed on Huawei and try to impose on TikTok. Yeah, and when you're looking at the next generation of cars, I think the thing we've sort of touched upon a bit, but maybe not gone into too much here, is that the levels of autonomy in cars are generally increasing a lot. So we're only at the stage now where we're starting to see uh, Teslas and other some other vehicles having advanced driver fe- driverless features where people can they're not supposed to, but they can take their hands off the wheel a little bit and, to, and the car take control. And to do that, you need a huge array of sensors like some of these cars and some of the sort of like uh, autonomous test vehicles that companies are still developing have 10, 15 cameras. They have ultrasound cameras. They have all different types of sensors that can uh, really look at the world around them, and interpret it in terms of basically building up a a literal picture of what is in that street what is uh, being collected around uh, the cars and, and more and more as we see uh, autonomous features roll out obviously we've been promising autonomous cars or people have been pr- promising autonomous cars for the last 10-15 years and they're still at a very early stage because it's a super hard problem um, they're just collecting a lot more data they can understand the world around them and yeah that is a concern at some political levels and a bit of posturing as we say in terms of like the idea around national security it could be good for intelligence it could be good for surveillance it could uh, equally um, yeah have sort of that intelligence benefit yeah and it's sort of similar we'll have to make the same decision with cars as or have the same discussion with cars as we've had with tiktok and huawei 
if you are America, do you want there to be millions of Chinese-made, Chinese-owned, Chinese data-controlled cars driving around the roads of your country? Or do you want to kind of be a bit protectionist and say, well, actually, no, we want those cars to be run by Google or Meta or Ford or Kia, whoever. Um, so in, just in terms of the manufacturing, right, China also has a really well-developed supply chain for electronics, which is one of the reasons which is helping it to churn out, churn out huge numbers of EVs. And as we've heard from Emmett and Morgan, it also controls a huge amount of the global lithium production and supply. So this question of data and privacy is likely only going to get bigger as China becomes more prominent in the global automotive industry. So help us glimpse into the future, Matt Burgess. Where do you think all this is heading? I think that we probably will see, particularly when we're talking about cars and and electric vehicles in terms of data, privacy, security, there will at some point Uh, and this is taking nations out of it for a second, but there will be an incident at some point where a car is hacked in a way that gathers a lot of public attention. Um, That is probably going to be sort of like a standout incident if and when that happens. It's going to be something that is very rare, but then a lot of uh, sort of security around cars and vehicles, which companies do work on and do put a lot of effort into already, will be sort of put into the public sphere a little bit more. When you're talking more about the data, I think that that where that goes and sort of if countries will be fighting over their electric vehicle data and if there are certain EVs allowed in some countries and not allowed in others sort of depends on how the politics of this all goes as well, whether there is continuously this uh, West versus China narrative, which security officials in the UK, politician officials in the UK and the US have, have been very much in favour of building up that narrative and as China as a threat. So I think that all those overlaying factors will have an impact on if people really see cars as a national security threat or not. Yes, it's theoretical at now, but it will be interesting to see where it ends up in the future. Amit Morgan, I wonder from the two of you having worked on stories that were part of this package as well, the automotive industry, has, it's not that it's been stable for a really long time, but you know we know the major players. They're from Germany, Japan, South Korea, the US, a few from other countries in Western Europe. But now there is this moment where because China is so good at consumer electronics and it's got these companies that are at such scale that they've kind of got the confidence to now maybe go out into Western Europe, into Southeast Asia, beyond, beyond China, into America, and we could have an automotive industry not soon, but relatively soon, that is dominated by China, not just in the cars in our road, but all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. How likely is that, do you think? So I think there's a really interesting parallel with what happened in the US in the 70s and 80s, where Japanese cars suddenly kind of flooded the market and they were much cheaper and they were much better than American cars. And the way that America responded to this was basically huge subsidies, huge import tariffs, basically trying to prop up the American car market. I think we might see something similar. I think Chinese Chinese EVs, from everything I've read, are, are much more price competitive than than European or American-made electric cars. Um, so you know, all things being equal, you'd expect them to be more popular with consumers. Um, but I think we might see protectionism, and in the sort of vein of global politics of everything returning to the 1970s, I suspect that it will be a lot more expensive to buy a Chinese car in Europe than it should be. And also they can be cheaper because they control more of the supply chain. I mean, if you're a company and you've got like multiple lithium mines, like you've got connections to Chinese battery makers, you can you can drive down your prices. And at the end of the day, consumers, I mean, we see this in lots of different industries. Like fashion is a good example. People just want to buy things cheaply and and they want good products that they can buy cheaply. But I think the protectionism thing is really interesting and in really interesting detail about the Tesla a uh, story you just talked about after that story came out Berlin actually banned Tesla from the police compound in the city um, but actually 
the it took a few days until the police department U-turned and people were speculating whether that's linked to the fact there is a giant Tesla gigafactory in Berlin. I think, and this, this kind of speaks to a point that James made earlier, I think there is a degree to which the US and people in Europe are kind of guilty of being reflectively anti-China without necessarily interrogating the extent to which that's fair or valid, like as James mentioned, like China is not the only country that harvests data about its citizens. It's not the only country that hacks other countries. You know, there are, you know, a huge myriad of problems with American companies using our data or misusing our data. Uh, and yes, China has a different political system and, and perhaps a different set of a different moral code. But I think we need to be quite careful about kind of making these blanket assertions and saying Chinese APs are going to be bad because they're a threat to national security when actually you know, American EVs could equally be a threat to national security of other countries. Yeah, and we could end up in, in a place where most of the cars driving around the roads of France are made and controlled by French companies, which is kind of what Europe, not to go on about this point, what Europe is attempted to do and is attempting to do with antitrust regulation, right? It wants to see European competitors to Meta and Google and Apple. And if Europe can't build them, it's going to regulate the crap out of the American companies that have got supremacy to try and make sure that they operate within that market in a way that is um, compatible with European values as they see it. I think ultimately, though, what's going to be the best way to get more people into EVs more quickly? It's probably to flood the market with cheap EVs that are made in China. Yep. If this slows that down, then the risks of that are probably greater than the risks of a Chinese-made EV eavesdropping on a conversation between two politicians in Parliament Square. Yes, which is probably the elephant in this incredibly warm and stuffy room that we're recording <laughs> the podcast in. I am very glad that we, we're recording this on what day of the week? It's Thursday today. Um, London had the heat wave, the heat heat wave on Monday and Tuesday. It's a little cooler today, but not in this one room. So let's wrap it up there. Podcast at Wired uk. if you want to get in touch with us on anything that we talked about on the show this week. I was going to pose one of those awful radio questions. Would you drive a Chinese car? Would you consider it a threat? To, but just get in touch with the show and let us know what you think about that or anything else that we talked about on this show or any podcast that you've been listening to recently. So that's it. I'm off to Canada next week. I will never again, maybe never again, get to stare at Matt Burgess across the podcast table as he awkwardly stares down at his podcast notes. It's been seven years of staring. <laughs> I think I'm going to go into a period of mourning. I will become a square on Zoom. Anyway, it's been brilliant. Thanks for listening. I'll be off for a couple of weeks. These guys will be here and I'll be back soon. Thanks very much. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.